You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Then that time between Christmas and New Year's, I kind of take to myself and I don't do email. I, I, I kind of stay off social media for the most part. I kind of un, I, I kind of unplug. Um, I did on my phone though, and I was actually doing some work in the basement of my new house. You know, we moved into this house last year uh, in uh, in July, and uh, you know, I had a, a couple of projects I wanted to do downstairs. Uh, wanted to actually create a, a little workroom for myself. I played drums uh, in the old house. I had a nice place for my drums, and this one, nothing. Uh, so I was actually kind of working on that. And, and part of what I like to do when I relax is just listen to, um, I guess, smart people. I, I talk about things. I, I, I listen to podcasts, but really when I get in like the relaxing mood, uh, I, I don't do books and I, I don't do podcasts. I actually turn on YouTube videos of you know interesting people giving lectures, giving speeches, and, and what have you. And I came across this one. Uh, it, it was Malcolm Gladwell, who I, I love. And I, I know, you know, some people have very strong views on Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you know, positive and negative. I have very, you know, positive feelings about Malcolm Gladwell. I kind of adore the guy in many ways and, um, you know, have learned a lot from him and not only his insights, but like the way he thinks. I came across this interview of Malcolm Gladwell interviewing uh, Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler is a behavioral economist. He's one of these crossover guys. Absolutely, utterly fascinating. You know, someone who, by his own admission, was not a, a great economist, <laughs> uh, but kind of fell in with, uh, you know, some of the most brilliant, uh, some of the most brilliant people doing psychology and had these kind of epiphany crossovers uh, and started to apply the ideas that were coming out of human psychology that were really groundbreaking. I'm talking about stuff from uh, Kahneman and Tversky, the uh, thinking fast and slow people. If you, if you, if you want to read one book that will blow your mind, read thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. And, and it's a huge thick book. I will summarize it like this. Everything that you think, you know, about what you think, you know, is absolutely wrong. You know, the, the, everything you think you know about why you do something is just absurdly wrong. This book left me like dumbfounded, right? Just like, I, I can't believe the, 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 the base chimpanzee that I actually am as a human being. Uh, this is brilliant, brilliant research. And, uh, Taylor, uh, took that and started to apply it to, uh, e economics in a way that was you know, way long overdue. You know, we chatted here a little bit last year about the uh, Homo economicus and uh, uh, um, uh, the uh, Tomas Sedlicek conversation. 
And, uh, you know, this, this, this is very related to that. So here's this conversation between Malcolm Gladwell and Richard Thaler. And, and it's, you know, over an hour. It's a long interview. I really enjoyed it. It was, it was pretty good. Um, we got to the end and Malcolm Gladwell takes questions from the audience and he has them written down and he read this one question and I'm going to, I'm going to let you listen to Malcolm Gladwell say it because he asked this question and I'm waiting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I think I was painting at the time and I'm like listening for the answer thinking, oh, this is going to be really fascinating. And then I was just so utterly dumbfounded and disappointed by what was said. Here's that exchange. Oh, this is a question that actually... What it's is this? not about psychotherapy, right? No, no, no. We're, we're, okay. we're finished therapy. with that. All right. What is the single action um, we could all do that would drive the most social good? I want to modify the question um, and personalize it. Yeah. If we, <laughs> if we made you czar, um, you know, a czar, American economic czar for the next four years, uh, what, what would your agenda look like? You could basically do whatever you please as long as it was, you know, not magical. I, I mean, I don't know whether I have anything profound. I think it's been pure stupidity that we haven't been building roads, bridges, and so forth for the last seven years when we, we could... We can borrow at a negative interest rate and use otherwise idle resources. I mean, it's just mind-boggling that we haven't done that. So imagine me, like paintbrush in hand, you know, pause, <laughs> waiting with bated breath. You know, what is, this guy's a, a really smart man. He's been asked this question. I, I, I love his work. I love what he's done. I've read his books. I find him fascinating. What is the one like deep insight that this behavioral econo economist is going to have? And what does he come back with? We need to build, why aren't we building roads and, and bridges? It's so obvious. And of course, then the, you know, the audience applause, you know, they had barely applauded through the whole thing. They were kind of sitting there respectfully. He, he brings up building roads and bridges and, and the audience applauds. Like, this is round applause. I don't know what's going on in America. I, I don't get it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm beyond baffled. I mean, in fact, I, I was sitting uh, on the couch uh, with my wife tonight, and uh, we, we were talking about, as we do some evenings, you know, the, the political happenings in the country. And I just, I, I told her, I, I said, I'm just, I'm baffled by all of it. I'm not baffled by the right. I'm not baffled by the left. I'm not baffled. I'm I'm baffled by all of it. All of it. Like it, it's it. I feel back in 2008 when I started writing the Strong Towns blog. It it was because I was baffled. I I, I nothing in the world made much sense to me. And as we've you know worked here and had a conversation here and it's grown. It's really helped me deal with the fact that the world is a, is a crazy place that doesn't make a lot of sense. And for the first time, really since 2008, uh, I'm back to feeling like, like this place is insane. I, I don't really understand what people are thinking and what is going on. And, and, and this was like one of these kind of moments for me where I, I, I think I just like 
threw my paintbrush down and, and stomped out of the room. Like, wh- like you've got to be joking me that this is what you come up with <laughs> roads and bridges. Come on, come on. Uh, last year on the, uh, uh, on the, on the, 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 the digital site, for those of you who are podcast only, I have to tell you, you're, you're missing out on a lot. Uh, we, we publish so much stuff and, and we've had this infrastructure crisis conversation going on. You've gotten it here on the podcast with a bunch of interviews, uh, but we've had it going on in great depth uh, through our, our regular content stream. I wrote a piece that actually wound up being rerun as one of our best ofs at the end of the year. Uh, but it was it was called What Clearly Makes Us Richer. And it played off of uh, a quote from uh, Paul Krugman. Now, as soon as I bring up Paul Krugman, I, I've automatically tilted your elephant, uh, you know, the, in psychological terms, the, uh, the intuition that you have one way or the other. Uh, when you say Paul Krugman to a, a liberal, uh, they tend to, you know, perk up and say, yep, you know, this guy uh, carries a lot of water for me. I I, I like him. What's he going to say? And you're inclined to think, you know, very smart man. You say Paul Krugman to a conservative and it kind of goes the other way. Like this guy is, you know, nothing but a a court jester and, you know, a a, a bad one at that. So when I say Paul Krugman, I've automatically kind of signaled to you, uh, depending on where you're at, where I'm going with this. I've been critical of Paul Krugman for a long, long time, and I hope it's not ideological on my account. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it's it's a it's post intuition rationalization that I have. But you know, he wrote in in the context of like pre election when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win, and uh, you know uh, there was going to be kind of a Democratic sweep, perhaps even in Congress. And we would have this surge of the left uh, kind of in, you know, an exclamation point on President Obama's eight years. Uh, He was kind of setting the groundwork for large infrastructure spending. And I I found this one quote in particular of his to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, He wrote this column. It's called Time to Borrow, or as, as I joked, you know, Monday. Um, <laughs> cause in Krugman's world, it's always time to borrow, which is not exactly true because now in January, he's come out and said, no, we're, we're done borrowing, but we could get to that in a different podcast. But in his time to borrow uh, column from last August, he said, uh, investing more in infrastructure would clearly make us richer. Meanwhile, the federal government can borrow at incredibly low rates. 10 year inflation protected bonds are just 0.09%, which is like insane. Put these two facts together, big needs for public investment and very low interest rates, and it suggests not just that we should be borrowing to invest, but that this investment might well pay for itself, even in purely fiscal terms. Now, pause there for a second. Might well pay for itself. This is the, <laughs> this is the, the phrase that I wanted to focus on because when we hear people, Richard Thaler, uh, who you just heard, Paul Krugman, uh, Larry Summers, uh, you know, being the last two being kind of the outspoken, uh, you know, let's let's spend on infrastructure kind of people. But, you know, essentially go to any economist who is of the, uh, you know, either Keynesian school or the monetarist school, uh, you know, people who think that government stimulus is going to however it's administered 
uh, make things better, which, by the way, is an almost not even a bipartisan consensus in Congress. It's almost like a universal truism amongst our leadership. Uh, you know, spending on infrastructure is the way to go. And the idea is, you know, we invest in infrastructure. It creates jobs. It creates growth. These are things that pay for each other many times over. We get the, uh, the, you know, the reports that say, you know, for every dollar you invest, it's a 10 to 1 payback, that kind of thing. So then there's this quote from Krugman where he says, this investment, you know, with these incredibly low rates uh, and this huge need, might well pay for itself. It might well pay for itself. Not, you know, it will, there's huge payout, you know, well, it, it might well pay for itself. It, it might sound like I'm torturing this phrase. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Because w- what I want to point out here is that this is a moment where, uh, and I'm going to say this in a way, I, I don't want to tick off all you people who, you know, think Krugman is the greatest guy in the world. I, let me let me put it like this. I think he is honest. I, I don't think he is dishonest. Okay, <laughs> so I'm not trying to suggest that he is he is dishonest. I, I I think that he actually believes the things that he says. Right. So I'm I'm not suggesting that there's anything disingenuous about this. I, I think he's partisan and political, and I think that influences his thoughts. But I I don't believe that he is like disingenuous. But this particular phrase, you know, it might well pay for itself, was fascinating to me because it was, in a sense, an acknowledgement that it might well pay for itself. It might not. And might well pay for itself with like zero interest rates, right? I mean, you don't get a more favorable environment than what we're at now, uh, was a fascinating thing. So when you dig into this, they actually, uh, you know, put some numbers out there. And I won't torture them for you. You know, there's, you know, $1 is going to yield five cents a year and negative 10 year bonds. And then it goes to 50 basis points. There's a whole, there's a, basically as like a paragraph of math in there. Uh, I can do math. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with math. Uh, I sat down and actually ran the spreadsheet with his exact numbers uh, that, you know, quote, might well pay for itself. And lo and behold, uh, at a 30-year projection, which, by the way, I note in the thing, is is like insane. If you're channeling your inner Nassim Taleb, you know that you know 30-year projections of z- basically zero interest rates or incredibly low interest rates is an ab- absurd projection. Nonetheless, let's let's use the numbers that are given, and what we find is that in 30 years we have recouped in dollar terms. Uh, only a third of our investment. We still owe for every dollar we spend uh, 67 cents in principal. In the most favorable uh, climate for borrowing and building infrastructure, assuming rosy scenario forever in terms of borrowing and assuming like high rates of return on these investments, which uh, you know maybe we'll talk about here in a bit, uh, I think is a, a very poor assumption. Uh, we never retire this debt. We we never we never even come close to paying it off in, in any type of a reasonable time frame, let alone a time frame uh, that would allow you to kind of replace things. I don't quite understand why economists, uh, you know, and, and Richard Thaler being like the example I've chosen to pick on here, but I mean, we could go down a long list. Why economists just default 
to infrastructure as somehow being this savior, this thing that is going to actually make things better, that's going to actually help us. I've written a, a series of, of columns this year talking about uh, federal infrastructure and, and really in preparation of what we've started to call the infrastructure surge, the idea uh, you know, that, that candidate Trump, now President Trump brought forward that you know, we should have some big surge in infrastructure spending and that's going to you know, make America great, put people to work, fix up our crumbling bridges. I can't remember how, how he termed it in his, uh, in his inaugural address, but it was some, you know, we're, America's falling apart and imploding and we're going to go out and fix that. So, you know, th- th- there's this kind of idea that we're just going to spend a trillion dollars in infrastructure and that will, that will deal with our problem because the problem is a lack of spending, right? So I've been trying to, in a series of pieces, kind of combat that or at least dig into it a little bit in a way that people can grasp. And I, I started the year with this post, Five Ways uh, Federal Infrastructure Spending Makes Cities Poorer. Uh, not what Richard Thaler says, you know, the obvious thing, if you're the czar, what would you do? Uh, not Paul Krugman saying, you know, it's, this, this, is a, this is a clear winning investment. Uh, you know, we might even make it work in financial terms, which by the way, do you, I'm going to, I'm circling back here now and I apologize for that. You do understand what he's saying, right? He's saying that infrastructure doesn't pay for itself. Generally, it's a social investment. It's something, you know, we spend money on because uh, it has other benefits, you know, jobs, uh, low, you know, lowers unemployment, uh, you know, uh, it does other things. It doesn't pay for itself. It doesn't make sense. But, you know, now in this really low rate environment, it might actually even pay for itself. This is, you know, economist speak, and it's it's really insane. But let me, let me you know, get to this five things that uh, the way federal infrastructure spending makes our cities poorer. The first one, uh, I started out with, you know, the national economy grows, but cities take on the long-term liabilities. And this is something that's never talked about with infrastructure spending. Uh, I remember um, in my early days working as an engineer, and we would have these federal projects. You know, you'd get federal money to extend a sewer, you know, run a water line out, uh, you know, build a build a road. You you would get federal money, sometimes some state money. And uh, sometimes a little bit of local match, but, you know, a lot of times, like, the bulk of the money was paid for uh, from outside of the community. And you would, you would go out and build this thing. And it was always like a stretch to come up with the 5% or the 10% local match, right? Like, where, where are we going to get, we got a, a $6 million project, where are we going to get the $600,000 that we got to come up with to make this work? And you know, you'd bring in bond counsel and you'd work through all this stuff and you'd you'd float some debt and you'd figure out a way to finance it over a long period of time or you you'd roll some old debt over to lower that payment now and, and consolidate it with this one. You know, the 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 kind of like, you know, taking one credit card to pay off the other credit card kind of thing. This is what we would do to to get projects done, to get them going, and to, you know, work on that like ten percent. Nobody ever bothered to look and say, well, okay, now this pipe is yours. You know, now this road is yours. Now this sidewalk is yours. This curb is yours. 
um, all these all these manholes and, and and meters and valves. These are these are now yours, local government. Uh, you're gonna have to fix these someday. And the reason why you know nobody does that is is obvious, right? Um, that's not something the the project advocates want to bring up. Um, that's not something the engineer wants to bring up. I mean, you, you want to get that project through. There's no like incentive for you to say, hey, um, you know that 90% the federal government's paying? Like they're not going to be around when this needs to be fixed. You're going to have to come up with that. And boy, you're having a hard time with the 10% now. How are you going to come up with the other 90% you know, a generation from now? The politicians uh, at the time you know, have no incentive to do this. I mean, they're, they're not going to be there in almost all likelihood. I remember I did a project once where we uh, <laughs> we we took out a 40-year bond uh, through the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. It was financed at like below market interest rates for 40 years for them to to make up their portion, and it almost killed them. I mean, it was it was you know the max that they could afford, but it was like five percent of the total project cost. And I, I remember sitting in that meeting where they actually voted to issue those bonds. And I looked around and there wasn't a single person on the council who was not, you know, over 65. They were all on, on social security, you know, uh, what have you. They were, they were all retired. They were all over 65. And I thought a 40 year bond, like none of you, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe some of you will you know, have unnaturally long life, but the odds are like, none of you will be here to pay off this debt. Like none of you. This solves your problem today, but none of you are going to be around in the future when this debt actually has to be paid off. Are, are we doing something that's even moral? Well, the first way that, that federal infrastructure spending makes cities poorer is that you know the federal government gets good growth today, right? All the stimulus that Krugman generally refers to, uh, all the job creation, um, you know, all, all the, uh, the, uh, the stimulus that happens. That accrues right now. Um, and really, that shows up on the federal balance sheet. I mean, it shows up on federal GDP. Uh, you know, that, that's where those statistics show up. But if you're the local government, uh, you may get a little kick, right? You may get a few jobs locally. You may have someone come in and apply for a permit or what have you. Uh, you may even get like a new building or some new growth and some new tax base. But what you take on from an accounting standpoint are these enormous long-term liabilities. Um, you know, I showed in Lafayette uh, where you have, between the end of World War II and today, population that has grown by three and a half times, uh, yet the amount of water system they have in the ground has grown uh, 10 times in terms of pipe and 21 times in terms of the number of hydrants. So you've grown your tax base uh, you know, you, you've grown the community's wealth by three and a half times. Uh, you've grown your liabilities by 10 to 20 times. Those numbers just don't make any sense. They don't add up. And they're part of a system that is kind of run from the top down where the federal government makes the investment, uh, the growth happens, and then the cities take on the liability. Uh, you know, when Richard Thaler says, well, the obvious thing is that we need to build more roads and more bridges. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. We are literally bankrupting our cities doing this. The, the second thing I pointed out in this piece was that federal infrastructure spending goes primarily to those parts of our development pattern that are least productive. 
So when Richard Thaler says we need to go out and build highways and bridges, uh, when you look at the landscape today and you say, okay, where do we need, if we were going to go out and our subset of things we were going to build were highways and bridges, where would those things happen? And they would generally happen in like greenfield areas, I think is what planners would call it, you know, in, in areas where you don't have a lot of development yet, or there's, uh, you know, a way to kind of artificially create some development pressure, or there's some development pressure, you know, growing in anticipation of some massive federal government investment. Um, the kind of things where you would build like an interchange or, or, you know, a bridge to open up some more land for development. Uh, you know, when you look at these things from a price standpoint, they're incredibly, incredibly expensive. And when you evaluate their tax base, they're ludicrously low yielding. Um, my friend Joe Minicozzi is, you know, getting famous. If he's not famous already, he really should be for pointing out this mismatch between, you know, development that is uh, in, a, in a more traditional development pattern where it's more incremental, tighter streets, uh, you know, traditional kind of block development versus the stuff we see out on the far edge where we tend to put these massive investments and how the, the ratios between the two are just absurd. I mean, absurd to the point where, you know, you're collecting on a, on a per foot basis uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 times the, 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 the return, the tax. I mean, you're, you're getting enormous, enormous returns in these traditional neighborhoods that we largely ignore through these investment programs. And you're getting you know, much smaller returns. And actually, when you look at the, uh, the cost that you're taking on, uh, hugely negative returns at the local level in the places we're investing in. The last thing, if you're Richard Thaler, and you're, you know, you're Paul Krugman, and you're worried about the future economic health in this country. The, the last thing you want to do is make these like mindlessly low returning investments, these, you know, mindlessly negative returning investments, these investments that just create all kinds of burdens for people. I mean, local governments are what? They're, they're a collection of us. Uh, they're, they're not some abstract thing, you know. I've had people email me lately and say, Chuck, you just don't understand. You know, money is an abstract concept. We can print it. We can do all. Yeah. Okay. Great theory. Maybe go apply that at the federal government level. Fine. Uh, I don't buy it, but you know, go apply it there. When you get to the city level, you can't print your own money. You, you don't, you don't get to decide those kind of policies. You, you have to live within the rules as they're set. And you know, you, you, you've got to play by uh, you know, the, the, the profit and loss statement uh, that's in front of you. you. You don't get to have some abstract concept of money. You, you don't get to go into theoretical la-la land. You got to actually deal with things as they are. And if, if you have that understanding of life, how can you, as Richard Thaler, look and say, you know, cities, we need to build roads, we need to build bridges, Essentially, we need to make the lowest returning investments that we can possibly make in our infrastructure systems. It's just reckless and irresponsible. The third point that I, I made in kind of refutation of this, boy, we got to have the federal government spend a lot of money on infrastructure, is, is the point that most of what we spend goes to building new stuff. Even though what people say they want and, and what you know President Trump said that he wanted to do 
in the election, uh, during the election season and during his inaugural, is go out and fix uh, our roads and bridges, you know, maintain stuff. When we look at where money is actually spent, more of it goes to new construction than goes to maintenance. It's an absolutely bizarre phenomena. And I, 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 I don't think it's fair to uh, use an analogy of, of government as a business. I, I'm actually a fiscally pretty conservative guy, and I, I think that business principles can help us understand what is working and what isn't working in government. But I've never been an advocate of running a government like a business. But for this example, I'm going to kind of break that and say, let's say you're a business or let's say you're a family, right? And you've got a house and the house has a leaking roof. Who in their right minds looks at a leaking roof that is like, you know, water pouring in and destroying other parts of your home and creating mold problems and, you know, leaking roofs just like cascade negative things. You get a leaking roof and, and what you decide to do is go out and take out a huge loan to put an addition on the house. Like who in their right mind does that? That is essentially our, our federal transportation investment policy. That's our, that's our federal infrastructure policy. When you go through the list of projects that states have uh, you know, on their lists, if they even come up with maintenance projects, which you know the, the federal government tends to, uh, I was going to use the word deprioritize. I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, when they're putting out priority lists, the bottom ones tend to be the maintenance projects, right? They're just not, they're not sexy. Uh, I, I remember back, you know, in the, in the 90s, I had a, a maintenance project in this poor city that literally could not afford even a tenth of the cost of the project. I mean, they, they, there's no way they could have paid for this project. And uh, I went to the federal grant agencies with it and... Essentially, they said, well, you can apply, but you're not going to get anything. You know, you're, you're pretty ranked pretty low. Uh, well, why? Well, because this is maintenance and, you know, maintenance ranks really, really low. Uh, so we went back and we um, included a little bit of maintenance, but we also added in like a, a ton of other things to this project, made a, a bunch of, you know, new pipe in the ground and new extensions and hooked up a bunch of people and did a bunch of crazy stuff. And then went back to them with this huge project, a project that was eight times bigger, but included, uh, you know, all these other things that checked off all the boxes. And what was the feedback we got? This is a this is a great project. You know, you've got opportunities for growth. You've got job creation. There's a there's environmental issues you're dealing with. Uh, you're serving low and moderate income people. Like this met all the check boxes, and we got a huge grant uh, that took care of everything and allowed us to do that like little maintenance project. We basically had to piggyback a, a huge amount of growth onto a maintenance project just to get it funded. This is the crazy world we live in. And when we pump more money into the system, when, when you have a guy like Richard Thaler who says, hey, you know, I'm the economic czar of the country, the obvious thing to do here is to put a bunch of money into infrastructure. You're just pouring money into a system that is not doing what you think it's doing. It's not going to spend the money actually fixing our roads and bridges uh, and, and sewer and water pipes. What it's going to do is it's actually going to create more liabilities, more things that we don't uh, have the money to fund. 
and it's going to do it in a way that returns every investment less and less and less and puts us in a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. This is insanity. This is insanity. Um, the fourth thing that I brought up, and, and this one got me in a little bit of trouble with some people who uh, really love the Tiger Grant program because I use Tiger as, a, as an example. But I pointed out that you know federal infrastructure spending induces local governments to take on a lot of debt. And that debt tends to be very unproductive. And by unproductive, I mean it is not able to be serviced by the wealth that's created from the project. So it's debt that actually takes you financially backward. Uh, you, you go in the hole borrowing and then you're not able to repay it back uh, by the investment. Again, uh, I'm not trying to say we should run cities like a business, but we should apply business principles to understanding what's going on in a city and when we do that, what we see is that you have a pretty finite capability to borrow money that you can't pay back, right? And this is where cities are at today. I mean, you go back to uh, the end of World War II and the typical city was spending just a couple of percent of their budget on debt service. Uh, that now at a national level is 18%. And I've seen cities uh, at 50% where, you know, one out of every $2 that they bring in is going to pay debt service on old projects. Um, that's crazy. That that's that's absolutely crazy. And what happens, you know, when the federal government comes in with essentially free money and a big infrastructure spending binge, is that you know the programs they come in with say, how do we get as a federal government the most bang for our buck? Where can we spend a dollar and leverage that against you know some other dollars that are being spent? And so I pointed out, for example, with the uh, the TIGER program, uh, TIGER stands for the Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery Program. It's one of the most popular infrastructure programs at the federal government because it's kind of flexible and, um, you know, went to fund a lot of non-traditional kind of projects. Uh, one of the criteria they have, and it's, it's I, so I don't know what number that would be, the 11th criteria or something, uh, criteria I, but it actually winds up to be, in the final analysis, one of the top criteria. The, uh, the criteria is, you know, who else is going to pitch in some money? Uh, do you have other funding sources that are coming to the table, or are you just asking for the federal government for money? And the reason this becomes important is because, you know, the federal government has a, a limited pie to dish out to people. And if you come to the table with you know, half the project paid for from state funding and local funding, uh, you become a much more viable project than someone who comes forth and has no money at all and needs the federal government to pay for all of it. So what happens is that in order to move projects ahead, local governments go out and take on debt, debt that they really shouldn't take on, debt that they really can't afford. And debt that they're not going to be able to service and pay back with the project, let alone, you know, take on additional liabilities, things they're going to have to maintain in the future, you know, yada, 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 what we've already talked about. So these programs induce local governments to take on large amounts of debt as part of their match to make things go forward. And, and this is just, it's just wrong. It, it's when we step back and say, you know, why are our roads and bridges crumbling and, and the economists automatically conclude, well, it's because we're not spending enough. No, no, it's because 
we've bankrupted our cities. We've foisted on them all this bad investment, all this negative returning stuff, all these huge long-term liabilities, all this debt we've induced them to take on. And now we sit and say, well, well, you know, why aren't we maintaining our infrastructures? Come on, come on. All right, last thing that I brought up, and, and I think this is the most important one in terms of, of moving us ahead. I just said, federal infrastructure spending blinds local governments to better projects they could do themselves right now. There's a whole long list of things that we could do that we should be doing today that we don't bother to really take seriously because it's not like the real game, right? The real game is lining up in the federal system, having your shovel-ready project, uh, you know, making sure it's a nice doozy, uh, getting in line, doing your lobbying, getting your lobbyists lined up, getting your congressional representatives lined up, getting whatever matches you can get from the state, essentially looking up the government food chain to get in line to catch things when it's when you know when it starts to rain right when it starts to rain money you want to be there with your you know cistern of a project to catch as much as you can right that's that's the way our local governments are oriented today and my point is that this blinds us to all kinds of great things around us that we could be doing right now with the resources that we have that would not only make people's lives better I mean it would actually you know be beneficial to people but in reality would be lower cost, lower risk, and have much, much higher returns on investment. What are these kind of things? And I wrote as a follow-up to that original piece, I wrote a piece called The Five Low-Cost Ideas to Make Your City Wealthier. Because there was this, you know, okay, Chuck, smarty pants, <laughs> you're bl you, know, you say local governments are blind to what they should be doing. What should they be doing then? And so I said, here's... Here's five like really low cost things city could do. The better block. Uh, the better block is a brilliant, brilliant concept. The idea of going out, making small scale interventions in a block, uh, seeing what happens, doing it as a test, uh, figuring out what works at a small scale, pilot it, and then go expand on it and make it more permanent. Uh, this is a way to impact a neighborhood quickly, to move things along quickly, it's it's brilliant, brilliant work. If you don't know it, uh, go check out the Better Block Foundation. Uh, read the book Tactical Urbanism by Mike Lydon. Uh, get to know this stuff. It's really, really important. Uh, the second, the Incremental Development Alliance. Uh, John Anderson, Monty Anderson, who I've had on the podcast a number of times, both of them, uh, out there across America teaching people how to be small incremental developers. Uh, we hear so many times that we need incremental development. We need people making these investments in our neighborhoods. It's hard to do if you're the big corporate developer who has the standard approach that you use. The people who are going to make this kind of change are these small incremental developers. Give them a call. Bring them to your community. Help them train in your, your you know underemployed uh, or poorly employed people and help them create their own jobs. These guys are brilliant at what they do. Let's get them in. It wouldn't cost that much. It would make a huge difference. The third one, the Oswego Renaissance Association. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you heard Paul Stewart last year. I think it was the, it was the best podcast we did last year. Him talking about how they uh, took these small matches for people who would invest money in fixing up the outside of their property 
And by doing this, they unleashed all this sidelined capital and brought it out into the open in these neighborhoods and have just seen this great renaissance of investment in these places. I, I, I'm absolutely inspired by this, and I think this is something that every city should be doing and, and can be doing with a minimal amount of budget. The fourth one, economic gardening. If you go way back in our archives, you'll hear an interview with Chris Gibbons. Uh, Chris Gibbons uh, is the, the guy or one of the main uh, people who came up with the concept of economic gardening. And they've taken this with the Lowe Foundation National and are helping places all around the country to implement it. Uh, what you're talking about is growing your own jobs and growing your own jobs in a very low-cost, specific kind of way that has this kind of catalyst effect throughout your community. It's a, it's a brilliant program. It pays huge dividends. It doesn't cost much to do, particularly when compared to traditional economic development approaches, and it, it has been proven to give huge, huge returns. We should all be doing this. It gets crowded out when we're playing the uh, how do we get in line for money kind of game. And then the, f the fifth one that I pointed out, and like we could have gone on and on. I could have gotten a dozen of these, but I stopped at five. Uh, small change. I had this group on last year. Um, you might have remembered my interview with Eve Picker. Uh, I had her on talking about her organization, Small Change, a place that is uh, allowing individuals to make very small investments. I think you can go as small as 100 bucks. Uh, and those in that, that money that you invest is then turned around and invested in real estate projects in your community. And, you know, when I say invested, I don't mean crowdsourced. I mean, actually, you give them 100 bucks, you're going to expect a rate of return. You're going to expect more than 100 bucks back as part of the project. It allows regular people to get financing and regular people to be uh, investors in their community. It frees up capital to actually make our places better. We should be unlocking this in communities all over the country. These are the kind of things that get pushed to the side, uh, pushed to the side when we flood our systems with this you know, big sugar high of federal money. And when I hear people like Richard Thaler, when I hear people like Paul Krugman uh, come forward and say, boy, the obvious thing we need to do, like if you don't see this, you're an absolute dunce. You know, we have low interest rates. We should be borrowing lots of federal money uh, and we should be going out and spending it on roads and bridges and infrastructure. I just step back and I say, what kind of insane world is this good advice? You know, what, what have we come to in this country where that is considered like the best economic minds available? I think it's insane. I, I think it's absolutely insane. It's an approach that has, you know, not only created a whole bunch of infrastructure that we're now struggling to maintain, but it has bankrupted our cities. It has pushed uh, good investment to the sidelines and replaced it with bad capital, bad investments. And it, it, it has, you know, set us back decades and decades, generations uh, that now our cities are going to have to recover from. We got to stop with this advice. It's just plain bad advice. I was thinking about on this podcast going through and, and you know, giving you this like long litany of, of economists saying this because they, they almost all say it. I mean, it's, it's a rare economist that this isn't like 
the first thought out of their mouth. What should we do? More infrastructure. Build bridges. Build roads. Um, my gosh. Push back on it. Just stop. Stop. This has got to this has got to end. Like what are we what are we doing? Why is this, you know, to 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 paraphrase uh John Oliver, why is this still a thing, you know? And it's funny because John Oliver actually did a piece on infrastructure funding. <laughs> uh, you know, making the same argument that Thaler and uh, and Krugman are making. And let me let me close with this. It is obvious that, you know, we need more money for infrastructure, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to argue that we're not underfunding this stuff. What I'm trying to argue is that the way we go about building it, the way we go about doing it, the way we actually have approached this problem historically and, and are poised to, you know, again, with an infrastructure surge is actually the problem. It's the thing that is creating this funding gap. It's the thing that is leading us to having all this crumbling infrastructure. When you make low return investments, when you put a dollar in, and not only do you not get a dollar back, uh, but you know you get less than a dollar back plus a ton of liability. You know, many, many, many dollars worth of things you're going to have to do in the future. That is just a recipe for bankruptcy. It's a, it's a recipe for driving our cities down and just grinding them into the ground, which is what we are doing. I'm not going to pretend we don't need money. We do. But before we spend the money, we actually need to develop a different approach. We actually need to talk about how we do things differently. Now, as a closer here today, I'm going to tease the uh, the next deal. Um, I'm actually coming back and talk about what I think, you know, how I would reform the system we have right now on the fly. I mean, understanding that we're not going to pause here and take four or five years and actually retool bureaucracies. We're going to, you know, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, uh, we're going to spend infrastructure money with the systems we have today, not the systems we wish we had. So, in light of that, how would we go about changing this? And just to kind of tease this, I'll let you know, uh, we were actually asked this by some members of the, uh, of the Trump team uh, working on this issue. Like, what would you do? And uh, next time, I'll give you that response. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, check out strongtowns.org. I mean, go to the site. If you're a podcast-only listener, I'm, I'm telling you, you're missing out on a lot. And we've been really hot this year. There's been a lot of really good stuff. Uh, take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Build, 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 build. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. 
The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.